Finding light in the darkness is a very American thing to do. In fact, it may be the most American thing we do. Working on it, Mr. President. Working well, on it. I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling there's something right. Light in the dark. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Can do. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Once again, welcome to the Bradcast. So, uh, Desi Doyen. Yes. On Thursday night, just after Joe Biden wrapped up his first primetime address to the American people as president, mm-hmm. a few hours after he had signed what many are describing as the most progressive relief stimulus investment bill in U.S. history. That would be his $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, or ARP, all of which we will discuss with our guest uh, momentarily. New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez summed it all up this way on Twitter. Uh, AOC said, this week in Congress, Dems, Passed $1.9 trillion COVID package to deliver stimulus checks with dependents, cut child poverty in half, extended $300 unemployment insurance, prevent cuts in state and local services, largest ever investment in native communities, etc. GOP took a week to read the cat in the hat. (laughs) Yes, that sounds about right. That sums it up. That sums up this week in America. Kind of does, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, it is kind of the truth. It it seems that the, uh, the, the GOP right now has uh, no way that they have figured out how to oppose this wildly popular relief package, which, as I have been reporting over the past week or so, I believe 
will get even more popular once it becomes clear what all is in it. Therefore, I was happy to hear uh, Joe Biden mention that he, they'll be hitting the road over the next few weeks yeah. to actually sell this plan. Maybe they learned something from uh, from the Obama era when they really didn't sell for example, the uh, Affordable Care Act out to the American people and explain what it actually does do and doesn't do. Yeah, instead of chasing Republican opinion and Republican yep. support and Republican validation, they're actually saying, this is what we're doing. Which is one of the reasons why, by the way, I wouldn't have minded if it took an extra day or something for Joe Biden's name to be included on the checks the way Donald Trump was actually smart enough to figure out uh, was wise to do. Yes. It's one thing to pass a, a you know, good policy. It's another thing to let the American people know that you have passed good policy that helps them. Especially in this corporate media, right-wing media echo chamber where these kinds of accomplishments, these kinds of things that actually benefit real families in real time don't actually get the kind of coverage that they would normally get in a sane world. And they don't, you know, to let to help the American people understand who did these things, because in this case, yeah. you know, there was zero Republican votes for something that I think is going to be quite popular package, uh, you know, particularly once checks start showing up in people's bank accounts and in their mailboxes and not just the fourteen hundred dollar checks, but checks of three, six $900 a month based on how many children they have. Once they see their health care insurance premiums coming down, once they see, uh, you know, new roads and bridges and other infrastructure improvements happening and new classrooms and schools being built and ventilation systems upgraded in them. And of course, once they get uh, access to a covid vaccine, of course, uh, if all of that stuff rolls out smoothly. But uh, that's all in the package. And oh, yeah, once Child poverty is cut in half, as studies suggest could now happen, thanks to the American Rescue Plan. But I have been uh, I've been arguing that not only may this package become more popular, but that it could once Americans actually start seeing government working again. If, in fact, that comes to pass, but working again, working for them, actually, you know, receiving benefits from a federal government for the first time in decades that this actually could turn out to be, as I have argued, the end of the Reagan era. That great con that led a generation or more of Americans to believe that government is not the solution. Government is the problem. Now, I may or may not be right about that. We will see. But I you know, made the argument yesterday here on the broadcast and, and before that on Twitter. And I will ask my guest about it shortly. That would be the great Heather Digby Parton. She will be with us momentarily to uh, for a happy change, I think, uh, for the first time in, in at least four years to not talk about Donald Trump, probably. <laughs> mostly, but to actually uh, talk about Joe Biden and the Democrats and what they are doing. Now, there's a switch. And actual policy. Go imagine, right? Uh, but just to give you a quick idea of how my uh, end of the Reagan era argument was received by a few uh, folks on Twitter and elsewhere after the show. Uh, so I had tweeted uh, earlier in the day um uh, quote, time will tell, but I think it's quite possible that with the passage of Biden's American Rescue Plan, the Reagan era may have finally just ended. 
Erwin Curry tweeted on uh, re- tweeted in response on Twitter to say, "I'm hoping the same and thought that too." Hmm. Jerry Harkrader said, "Wouldn't that be nice?" Yes. <laughs> Ernie Canning, our uh, legal expert at Bradblog.com, uh, wrote in response to the tweet. He said, "It will hasten the end to neoliberal ideology and austerity." We'll see. Hope he's right. Mark R. Via email to bradcast at bradblog.com, quotes me as describing the, quote, four-decade-old Reagan era and adds, thank you for saying that. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Hart Wolf on Twitter said, I've had that thought more than once over the past week, but damn, 40 years, what a price. Yes. Paid largely by a middle class turned poor that first voted for that slick charmer, then was destroyed by policies he implemented and later largely GOP presidents built on. And then he adds some uh, some symbols and letters, which I think signify something I can't say on FCC radio (laughs) anyway. Uh, and by the way, it wasn't just GOP presidents who built on it, unfortunately. Yeah. Remember, it was, you know, uh, uh, Bill Clinton yeah. came in, said this is the end of the era of big government. Yes. Again, <laughs> chasing that Republican buy-in to get stuff passed, believing, I think, you know, that it would help in some fashion, but being absolutely completely wrong. But uh, not everyone agreed with my argument. Mm. Uh, on Twitter, the uh, someone who calls themselves the Institute for Advanced Horsepucky Analysis <laughs> responded to say, nope, the minute the pandemic is over, it is all go- going to go back to the way it was. The rich bullying all of the politicians and screwing the poor just like they have for millennia. Verdant Square Radio, our uh, great affiliate run by uh, Natalie down there. I'm not sure if she's the one who uh, tweets this or not, but she said... Uh, uh, temporarily, in response to mm. ending the uh, Reagan era, temporarily for half of the kids in poverty and a quarter of the adults. My thoughts go to the 50 percent of children and 75 percent of adults who will remain impoverished and won't get help or attention till Dems come back to bully them again for votes. Many will be dead by then. Mm. Well, that's kind of dark. Well, it is. But, you know. Got a point. N- not un- necessarily untrue. Yes. Uh, our friend D.R. Tucker, a regular listener, a reformed right winger and a political writer. And by the way, he was reformed long before uh, Trump, by the way, once he saw how the right was lying about climate change because D.R. actually bothered to read the science that the right was claiming did not prove that climate change was real, only to find out that uh, it was and that they were lying about that. And everything else. Anyway, DR writes me via bradcast at bradblog.com after uh, listening to our previous show on all of this uh, by writing, I know it sounds pessimistic, but I think the right wing media infrastructure in this country has to collapse before the Reagan influence on our politics begins to recede once and for all. Mm. He says, I wrote at Washington Monthly back in 2015 that the folks behind the national syndication of Rush Limbaugh's program intended to, quote, artificially extend the Reagan administration past its constitutionally limited time by propping up a man who would defend and attack the same ideas and politicians that Reagan defended and attacked during the course of his political career. 
And he says, I noted again at uh, Washington Monthly two years later, that Reagan's abolition of the fairness doctrine gave us three decades of radio programs that recklessly reaffirmed prejudices, smeared Democrats so thoroughly that some parts of this country have now seemingly become off limits for the party and set Americans at each other's throats. Sorry to be a downer, he says, but the passage of the American Rescue Plan will likely not cause the 74 million who voted for Donald Trump to reconsider their political allegiances any more than the passage of the Affordable Care Act made people stop hating Barack Obama. Only the thorough collapse of the Fox News, OAN, Newsmax, Wingnut Radio, Wingnut Website, Axis of Evil... And the replacement of that infrastructure with media organizations committed to a more progressive, egalitarian vision will finally tear down Reagan's ideological wall once and for all. Absent that, he says, I fear that Reaganism will be a virus that mutates, finds new hosts, Mm. and poses a renewed threat to public health. Wow. Well said, Dr. Well, okay, Dr. Downer. <laughs> well, listen, his cynicism is well earned. It, it, well, it's well earned, and he may be right. Uh, as I've been saying, time will tell, and I could be completely wrong in my assessment. Lucky for me, uh, the argument uh, is that history will look back on this as the official end of the Reagan era. So it'll be. Uh, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years before I'm either proven right or wrong mm, either okay. way. Uh, but let's take a quick break here and we will come back with Digby to get her thoughts on all of this and on Joe Biden's first primetime address to the nation on Thursday with some cautiously good news uh, that we might just maybe be able to have at least small family or neighborhood gatherings this 4th of July. That would be something to celebrate on the 4th for a change for the first time in many years. All of that and more straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. (laughs) I see what you're doing there. Just when I've begun to get myself together, you walk through yes. right the door, uh-huh. just like you've done before, and wrap yeah, my right. heart round your little finger. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So that's a, you got a Parton joke going yeah, on Dolly there, Dolly right? Parton, Heather Digby Parton, yes. Yeah, plus the the vaccine. She gave a million dollars to yes, uh, help create the vaccine. So another way to say, yay, Dolly Parton. <clears throat> Dolly Parton, not Heather Digby. She, she gave nothing <laughs> for the uh, for the virus. Uh, anyway, yes, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. After months of warning that the, quote, darkest days in the battle against COVID-19, quote, are ahead of us, not behind us. 
President Joe Biden struck a more optimistic, if cautiously optimistic, tone on Thursday as he offered a glimmer of hope that Americans may see some semblance of normalcy by Independence Day. Making his first primetime address as president, Biden mourned a, quote, collective suffering, a collective sacrifice over the last year, as USA Today reports it, but pivoted to a more hopeful future by announcing he directed states to make all American adults eligible to receive COVID-19 vaccines no later than May 1. He also vowed that if Americans do our part in the coming weeks, friends and family, families will be able to join together in small groups in time for the 4th of July celebrations. If we do all this, if we do our part, if we do this together, by July the 4th, there's a good chance you, your families and friends, We'll be able to get together in your backyard or in your neighborhood and have a cookout and a barbecue and celebrate Independence Day. That doesn't mean large events with lots of people together, but it does mean small groups will be able to get together. After this long, hard year, that will make this Independence Day something truly special, where we not only mark our independence as a nation, but we began to mark our independence from this virus. But to get there, we can't let our guard down. To get there, we can't let our guard down. He went on to say this virus is far from over. I promise I will do everything in my power. I will not relent until we beat this virus. But I need you, the American people, I need you. I need every American to do their part. And that's not hyperbole. I need you. I need you to get vaccinated when it's your turn and when you can find an opportunity. And to help your family, your friends, your neighbors get vaccinated as well. The president's 24-minute speech delivered from the East Room at the White House marked a departure from his mostly sober messaging on the COVID-19 crisis which has claimed now nearly 530,000 American lives in the past year since the World Health Organization declared it a pandemic. While still imploring Americans to wear masks, get vaccinated, wash their hands, President Biden, for the first time, looked ahead at, uh, to the start of a post-pandemic society. And it was not without good cause. Just hours earlier, Biden had signed the most sweeping and, yes, progressive relief and stimulus bill likely in this nation's history. The $1.9 trillion measure was nearly identical to the $1.9 trillion proposal that he had initially offered. It did not get whittled away in fruitless bad faith negotiations by Republicans, and even though the measure has been wildly popular with Democratic and Republican voters alike, it was passed in both houses of Congress without a single Republican vote. I've been reporting here over the past week or so how progressive the American Rescue Plan package actually is, unlike its predecessors, which tended to dole out huge dollars and tax cuts to those who needed it the least. Biden's ARP actually targets the poor and working class equitably. Uh, it's predicted to cut child poverty in half, and it includes long overdue support, not only for those who need it the most, but even includes 
hundreds of billions of dollars in investments in things like schools and infrastructure in all 50 states to help kids get back to class quicker and more safely and also put people back to work and shore up states and cities who have been slammed by lost revenue over the past year. In short, as I have been arguing, the measure is a paradigm-shifting response to America's problems, attacking them in a way that we have not really seen over the past 40 years in what history might regard down the road as the official end of the Ronald Reagan era. Time will tell if I'm right about that, but that's how different and progressive I see this particular plan by Biden and the Democrats to be this time around. And that's without even noting the $1,400 individual checks, extension of unemployment insurance, lowered health care premiums and monthly checks adding up to as much as $3,600 per child that American families will now see coming in each month for the next year or so as Fox News and other wingnut outlets instruct their viewers about the horrors of socialism. Todd Belt, a uh, professor and political management program director at George Washington University, said Biden was, quote, reestablishing the government as not being the enemy, but bringing out the cavalry that's going to be delivering all of these vaccines and delivering the checks and getting things running again. Indeed, if that effort proves successful, still a big if, of course, but it would be an impressive rebuttal to what I have long considered to be the greatest con in American history. Comes courtesy, no, not of Donald Trump, but of Ronald Reagan, uh, who falsely but convincingly apparently posited that government is not the solution. Government is the problem. Now, we are only 50 days into the new presidency, but Joe Biden's government, with the support of Democrats and again, zero Republicans in Congress, if they continue to be successful and don't screw it up, as Democrats are very good at doing uh, over the coming month, they may prove Ronald Reagan's argument to be cynical disin and disingenuous uh, that in truth, it always has been even if much of America seems to have bought into it for nearly four decades. But again, time will tell. And so might my guest today. Here to discuss all of this and much more is, yes, our old friend Heather Digby Parton is back. She is, of course, the longtime blogger known simply as Digby at the long-running Hullabaloo blog, a regular must-read contributor as well at Salon.com. And, of course, she is a Sidney Hillman Prize winner, for opinion and analysis journalism. Oh, welcome back to the broadcast, Ms. Parton. Oh, thanks for having me, Brad. Heather, I uh, I look back to see when you were on the show last. It was exactly one month ago, not all that long ago, but I noticed that it was the day that Donald Trump's defense team was offering its case uh, in our disgraced <laughs> former president's historic second impeachment trial. Uh Heather, it has not even been one month since Trump was found guilty of incitement of insurrection by a majority of senators, including seven Republicans. Is it just me or does that now feel like forever ago at this point? It certainly does. I mean, we we really live in interesting times, you know, I mean, that may be a little too interesting. Yes, no kidding. Uh, to be honest. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it seems like a long time ago, although it wasn't and that. That entire thing, the entire election, post-election, insurrection, impeachment, you know, storyline, mm -hmm. 
kind of hovers over everything that's yep. happening now. Yep. And, you know, it, it, it's part of it. And it's one of the things that I find most, you know, irritating about listening <laughs> to the right wing right now, which is you know, almost impossible because they're, you know, babbling about Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head all the time. But in terms of what's happening with the, with the COVID relief plan, the American Recovery Act, um, you know, they're, they're screaming now that, uh, you know, Donald Trump deserves credit. Oh, and, and I will, <laughs> hang, hang on, I will get to the, uh, to the right-wingers here in a second because we got some, yeah, some, some clips that I'll, I'll, I'll get your okay, thoughts <laughs> on that you may enjoy. All right. Um, but, you know, throughout the Trump years, Heather, uh, you joined us to discuss some of the biggest moments and or landmark moments in that failed presidency. Yeah. But now here we are. Uh, at what seems to be the first big landmark moment in the Biden presidency. And, you know, I was watching the speech on Thursday night and I thought, you know, I, I, I it just I wanted to talk to you about all of this. So first, setting aside uh, even the substance of the bill, which we will get to, and the wingnut response to it, which, yes, we will also get to. Just how do you think he did? How are you seeing his first primetime address being received by a the american people and b uh i guess often more importantly the not insane portions of the corporate media today well i didn't i was you know happily surprised to see the corporate media um be you know rather generous in their in their response i mean i i didn't spend a lot of time listening to them but to the extent that i mm -hmm. did it seemed as though there was they were positive about it uh, giving, you know, you can see that there's some growing, you know, sort of noise coming in in the in the punditocracy about, oh, that's a lot of money, et cetera, et cetera. They're getting spoken to in their ears by the the right wing playing the reps. But on mm -hmm. the on, you know, for the most part, I think it was pretty positive. I suspect that the American people will find it positive in the same way they found the program and all the elements within it positive. Mm -hmm. I mean, that it is rare that you find something this big and what normally would be considered very controversial, a uh, big spending program uh, that targets, you know, the poor and the mm -hmm. working class and the middle class, too. I mean, let's not forget there are elements in there that are super helpful to the middle class, like the the, the subsidies for the addition to the subsidies for the Obamacare and things like that. I mean, those are middle class, um, you know, elements that are really very helpful. But you know, this is not the kind of thing that would normally, it's as you say, you know, in the 40 years since the Reagan Revolution, we would have heard shrieking uh, uh, from the right wing and the media that this thing was a tax and spend crazy thing. There was some, you know, they, they sort of spoke to it a little bit, and they were kind of, oh, it's a liberal wish list, et cetera. But really, there was no energy behind it. Nothing like what we would have, you know, considered in the past. So Nothing. I have to assume it's going to be popular, and what it is is it's setting up, a, a a very very you know I think consequential battle over the future of American politics because what we're seeing is the Democrats coming in but Biden is not going to play the you know the Twitter game I mean that's just not a thing he has very consciously and I think very strategically set himself up as an anti-Trump in that regard he's not going to play the culture war stuff he's going to be you know very serious he's going to play a traditional role while dooming these big, big, you know, governance 
you know, sort of activity. So he's so, he's not going to uh, respond when uh, Fox News talking about you know the way the right and the way they used to respond. They're still responding that way over at Fox, uh, and I guess you you may disagree. For example. Uh, with this take on Biden's speech from uh, wingnut Mark Levin on uh, Fox News last night. This speech that uh, Joe Biden gave is the most disgusting, propagandistic speech that a demagogue, even a politician, has ever given. It is pathetic. <laughs> Well, speaking of demagogues, I mean, what is that? I mean, that's the most demagogic thing I've ever heard in my life. And it's ridiculous, of course. Joe Biden gave such a calm, you know, very, he was barely whispering at times, you know, yeah, talking know. in depth. I mean, there's nothing demagogic about that. And it just goes to show you, I mean, they are all culture war all the time over there. That's what they are betting on. They're betting on immigration being a big issue, these culture war issues that they're talking about, the cartoons and Dr. Seuss and the rest of that stuff. And they are unable to answer on any, I mean, they'll shriek about socialism, of course, uh-huh. and they'll talk about it. But I honestly think, and this I thought from the time Trump you know, the, you and I talked about it on the day Trump came down the escalator. Mm-hmm. What he signaled was the end of that. It was the he 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 sounded the death knell of Republican ideology, really, mm. because he was not really an ideological person. And what it showed was through the course of that campaign in 2016, and then throughout his presidency, was that the 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 base of the Republican Party. They had been told, you know, for years they'd get the, you know, the famous Lee Atwater, um, you know, comment where he said that they had decided back in the 50s they could just use racial epithets and mm-hmm. get their people on board. Mm-hmm. But as, t- as the society evolved, they had to couch it in these dog whistles like, you know, forced busing and, you know, welfare and mm-hmm. various things like that. So, you know, they had been doing that for years. And suddenly Trump came along and he didn't, you know, he was too dumb to know that he was supposed to do that. And it isn't in his nature anyway. And he was to use to the dog radio. to use the dog whistles. He, yeah. he dispensed with the dog whistles. He dispensed with yeah. the dog whistle. And what was the result? My God, the Republican base loved it. They wanted that red meat hot and sizzling. They didn't. The <laughs> dog whistle meant nothing to them. And what that exposed was that neither did that Republican ideology of small government. You know, the worst thing in the world is the government. You know, yep. what are the worst words in the English language? The government's coming mm. to help you. Isn't that what Reagan said? Yeah. So it just proved that they never cared about that, frankly. I doubt they understood it. I mean, they used to scream for the words tort reform at rallies. Right, I remember George W. Right. Bush rallies, and he'd say tort reform. And they'd go, yeah, you know, like they knew what tort reform was, right? <laughs> right. You know, yeah. But these were just... These were dog whistles that, that were, had been sort of, and they, it got to a point where they didn't even have any recognition that they were dog whistles. But, they but, didn't know that what they were screaming for was actually a racist appeal. They just knew that there was some emotional reaction. So mm-hmm. Trump comes along, gets rid of all that, and suddenly it was all right out there. And I don't think there's putting that genie back in the bottle at this point. And I think the the Republicans have recognized that, which is why... They're all floundering around talking about Dr. Seuss and cancel culture and all the rest of it because that's what their base wants. They, they can't 
give them anything else. Yeah, they don't know. They don't know how to move forward. They don't know how to respond uh, to what's going on. And, of course, you say that uh, it was the death of the Republican Party. I hate to tell you, Heather. No, ideology, I, not I, the party. Right, right. <laughs> oh, you're right. To Republican ideology. My apologies. Uh, but I hate to tell you, over at, over at Fox News, they, once again, have a different take on it. You'll be shocked to learn this thought on uh, Sean Hannity's Fox News show after Biden's speech uh, from uh, Fox News's other primetime star, Laura Ingram. What you think of this speech? Well, uh, I think it was supposed to be inspiring. Mm-hmm. It seemed a tad like a funeral for America, however. So <laughs> that's my quick take. So that's her quick take. You say Republican ideology is dead. She's declaring all of America dead, apparently, now under Joe Biden. Um <laughs> You know, it's interesting, and this is kind of a strange place, I think, for us to be, Heather. Uh, At least it is for me. Last time you were on the show, about a month ago, and we were still in the Trump era and his second impeachment, I mentioned at the end of our conversation, I don't know if you recall, but I mentioned that uh, that we had run out of time uh, during that conversation before we could talk about what Democrats were doing, and that that was a shame because... For a change, they were actually doing some good progressive stuff, and I think you and I both feared that they were going to screw it up before we got a a second to at least laud them for not screwing things up so far. Well, here we are a month later. I'm citing the new COVID rescue relief stimulus package as something that could end, you know, signal the end of the Reagan era, and I go to Salon today. I see that you're actually (laughs) comparing Biden favorably to Franklin Roosevelt, suggesting, quote, he could end up being the most transformative president since FDR. So my question, what the hell is going on here, Heather? (laughs) Who has clearly someone has gotten to either you or me? Who is paying us off, Heather? Uh, Well, it's got to be. We're getting paid off by by big progress. I don't know. But let's just put it this way. The checks have not arrived. So I'm okay. still I'm still waiting for yeah, that. I'm, I, the 1400 is about the best I can expect. Yes. Um, but yeah, I it it I look in my piece. In fact, in Salon, I talk about this. You know, no one expected that Joe Biden would be that person, right? I don't think anybody even thought that he had a chance of winning the nomination mm-hmm. in 2019. But you know, I think we thought, and in my piece, I point this out. You know, we thought it was going to take somebody with you know a kind of lot of razzle dazzle, mm-hmm. some real you know, super modern political energy to go up against Donald Trump. But Mm -hmm. something very, very important happened along the way, and that was the the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think people got very serious, and it it started, I think there was some, for whatever reason, whether it was the Democratic Party having an instinct about this, or whether or not it was, you know, sheer luck, as one of the books about the campaign uh, says, it was that Biden got lucky. Mm. Um, But whatever... It was. At that moment, Biden came along with this, you know, the experienced hand, the sort of, you know, uh, elder statesman with wisdom and, uh, you know, the kind of temperament you sort of saw, well, maybe this is what we need in this in this big crisis. And as it had, whatever it was, it was, it seems to have been sort of serendipitous that he ended up being being the guy. And I know that you were not a big Biden fan. I wasn't either. We were we were rooting for people who were more progressive Mm -hmm. and mainly not because I mean, I don't care about their personality that much, but Mm -hmm. on a policy level. 
I was just very concerned that Biden was going to retreat back to the Obama years yeah. and do grand bargains and be all hooked on bipartisanship. And, you know, it was just going to be more of that stuff, a restoration of the old style, which, you know, we've all been working for for years. Yeah to end, right? I mean, yeah. we didn't want that. So I didn't have any, any expectations. I knew he'd be good for healing the country, which was highly important. I mean, you can't, you can't possibly denigrate the idea that we needed somebody who could speak to the horrifying loss and pain mm-hmm. that the country's gone through. And we knew he'd be good at that. This other side yeah. of putting in a policy agenda that would truly take us, you know, take us into this more progressive direction. I, I didn't expect it. I'm happily, happily uh, surprised by it yep. and, and hopeful that he's going to go forward. And it's interesting because, you know, I read this piece in, in the New York Times that Zachary Carter, who used, he wrote for HuffPost, I think, until they just laid him off stupidly, um, he just wrote a big book on, on John Maynard Keynes, and it's really, really good. And he wrote a piece in, in, the, uh, in the New York Times in his retrospective of the past year mm-hmm. and what happened. And he spoke, was speaking specifically about the economic carnage and what happened. And he said, you know, as it happens when, you know, the Republicans, Trump, and the Democrats, all for different reasons and different motivations, did come together at the beginning of the pandemic. And as you say, there were plenty of goodies for the big business mm-hmm. and plenty, you know, the Fed just completely opened the floodgates. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that they did for their own people, mm-hmm. partially because they were concerned that the stock market was going to crash. But whatever the reasoning is, they did spend money. They spent some money. They got money out the door. They mm-hmm. did that. That was a Keynesian response to yeah. a major disaster. And he lays it out in his piece just how bad it could have been if they hadn't come together to do that. So that was, you know, that's sort of proof of, you know, a, a kind, something that's been growing for a while, through, over the past 20 years, was a re-recognition that really the Keynesian principles are what government has to do in a crisis. We went through that austerity thing back mm-hmm. in 2009. Some countries in Europe really went through it. Remember what the U.K. did mm-hmm. and the E.U. did to Greece and all and Spain and all that stuff? So there's been a recognition growing, bubbling up, that these principles are to be adhered to. The government has to do these things. That the government want. has to spend money at t- particularly uh, during bad times, uh, to to shore up the entire economy, and here we had even Republicans embracing that over the past right. year, uh, at least until, until Joe Biden came <laughs> to office. Right well. now, I, I you know, and I've been I've been spending a time you know re- reporting on what is in this COVID bill uh, and how it is structured to lift. The most people, not just to the wealthy and the corporations, but, you know, to to lift the most people, beginning with the poor and the middle class, because that seems to me to be a paradigm shift yeah. and, and one that I believe Americans are, are going to like a lot and not going to want to roll back when some of the provisions of the ARP are, you know, going to expire in a year or two. And I don't know how effective it's going to be to be shouting socialism to uh, families that are receiving checks of, you know, $300, $900 a month for their kids, uh, which is why I have argued that this could ultimately be seen as the official end of the four-decade-old Reagan era, which, you know, you say that Republicans sort of conceded when they turned uh, Keynesian last year. Uh, But now, especially with this bill, 
Um, I know I'm out on a limb with that idea that maybe the Reagan era is over, but am I wrong? Am I off base? I don't think so, and I think it's been coming for a while. There's been a growing recognition, I think, at least certainly uh, in the within the Democratic Party. Okay, I mean Republicans, you know, they're they're concerned with Dr. Seuss and you know mm-hmm. dead dead dictators in the, South the America. Party. I mean, they're not living in in the real world. The, the party, but, we, but the party, but the people now. These are Republicans. Oh. Uh, you know, Republican families are going to be getting these checks for three hundred, nine hundred dollars. Absolutely, and 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 that is a completely different thing. I mean, there are some who are clearly brainwashed by culture war concerns, mm-hmm. and there's not a whole lot we can do about that. But when you give look them at the, money, at the, give them money, right. that might unbrain that might unbrainwash them. And by the way, <laughs> look at the popularity of the bill in the polls. Yeah, I think that yeah, proves your point. You yeah. know, I mean, there are a lot of Republicans, like forty percent of Republicans, mm-hmm. were for the bill, and that's because, by the way, they were about to get a check. You know, so that does make a difference. And recognizing that maybe there's something that can be done about some of these intractable problems as well. I mean, coal miners in Virginia, you know, they, they're not, you know, part of our woke liberal elite club, but they, they understand their own self-interest, and they may very well be looking at that. I saw a bunch of interviews with guys that they're literally coal miners in West Virginia mm-hmm. who were just, they were mad that Republicans were voting against the bill, mm-hmm. and they were Republicans. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, they're kind of going, wait a minute, you know, I really need that money. You yeah. know, what's going on here? And, you know, there's also another part of this, which, you know, Zach Carter in his, in his piece in the New York Times, mm-hmm. talking about the Keynesianism sort of being, being, having, you know, really helped save the economy over the past year. But going forward, that's, there is an, a second half of Keynesian economics, which is that unless you plan for the future, unless you have a government that actively builds things like research, infrastructure, et cetera, mm-hmm. what he points out is that those things have been starved throughout the Reagan administration, throughout, throughout since the Reagan Revolution. Mm-hmm. And what happened was, is that while they were able to race in with, you know, the Fed and write some checks and get some money out in the crisis last spring, what they could not do was deal with the actual pandemic, because our public health system, our infrastructure, everything had been completely degraded. Yeah over decades, and that that is what we're talking about now with this part of the COVID relief. Part of the argument, and I don't see enough Democrats making it, you know, they've got Republicans out there saying, oh, it's a giveaway and blah, blah, blah. What does this have to do with that? Why are you building schools? They'll be back in school, blah, blah, blah. We're all getting vaccinated. It's over. And what, what the argument there is, look, the damage was extreme from the pandemic. We have no idea yet how bad it was in terms of the economic crisis that so many of the working poor went through, mm-hmm. where the, you know, and, and the damage to our infrastructure, our cities and states and our public health systems and all of that. We don't know yet. But even more importantly, the lesson from all of this is that we were completely unprepared for that crisis. And there are a lot of other crises coming down the road. Yep. Climate change, Desi, for one. Yeah. Uh, we are looking at some serious, you know, this is going to be natural disaster, you know, uh, state. <laughs> That's yeah. where we're going to be very soon. And, and, re- and building the country back to the point where, I mean, this is the second part of Keynes's theory which is that you need a government to take an active role in doing those sorts of things. It has to build the resilience into the culture, into the government, into the society, so that they can confront crises. And And I think that's where we're at with this bill. This is the first step toward that. And if Biden takes that attitude and decides to follow up on that philosophy, 
he will be a transformational president because that's nothing we have had nothing like that in the last 40 years no we haven't and we haven't built resiliency into the system not only that we've done the opposite we've yep. you know dismantled the system over the past 40 years you know when i started looking at this uh, at biden's covid bill i realized you know, I'm uh, I think I'm a little bit younger than you. I don't in my lifetime. I do not remember government um, actually serving the people, actually serving anybody but the rich, you know, the wealthy and the corporations and the idea that the government could actually help us. There's a whole generation of folks who have not seen this. And if this bill works out as, you know, you and I both seem to be uh, looking at it, uh, that's one of the reasons I, I see it as that paradigm shift that could end the Reagan era. But, you know, I was I was talking to Desi after our, our uh, previous show um, when Biden had just signed that one point nine trillion dollar American rescue plan. And pretty much it was the full plan that he had proposed initially, yeah. by and large, granted without the minimum wage increase. But, you know, I, I noted to Des, I said, I, I don't know if an Elizabeth Warren or even a Bernie Sanders would have been able to get that entire thing through as is. I think that they would have uh, faced far more opposition somehow from the right, um, you know, which basically still has no idea how to counter this plan. But I'm, you know, I'm reminded of I think it was during the campaign and I forget who said it, but I think, you know, it was about Biden's version of of of, of a Green New Deal that mm -hmm. simply by Biden supporting something he makes what might otherwise have been seen as radical as, you know, meh, pretty normal and conventional and establishment-like. Absolutely. In fact, one of the funniest, um, you know, anecdotes that I've heard recently uh, was that down at CPAC, they, somebody interviewed, you know, you know, they always have those vendors there that sell that god-awful stuff, mm -hmm. you know, that Hillary's name on a milk bottle, you know, yes. that kind of stuff. It's just right. gross. Yes. And, you know, uh, and... This year, they, said they had all these booths, apparently, with Hillary and Obama stuff, and they, they interviewed one mm -hmm. of the guys, and they're going, well, what's, what's up here? You know, why are you still doing that? And he goes, I can't give away the Biden stuff. Not even here. You know? no, nobody <laughs> like, wants it. Nobody wants it, because it, he just doesn't fit that mold. And again, you know, I mean, this is going back to what we thought, right? Right. This is a guy, you know, sort of an older statesman, you know, kind of goofy. He's, you know, he's fairly harmless, you hope, at best, you know, that he's not going to mm -hmm. really screw anything up too much. Well, you know, it, it, it may turn out that that's not actually the case. I mean, he does seem to be a flexible enough person. Maybe wisdom, you know, coming with age. I don't know. I never liked him that much when he was a senator, and mm -hmm. I had no great feeling for him when he was VP. But yeah. nonetheless, uh, you know, what he seems to be capable of doing is empowering, you know, smart, progressive people. I mean, a guy like Ron Klain is the chief of staff. I've been following that guy for years. I mean, he was in the Clinton administration. Yeah. He was in every, you know, Democratic um, administration, worked on the Hill and all of that. And he is very smart and, you know, he's pretty progressive. Yeah. And uh, certainly open to progressive ideas. I, I think I mean, they have all figured, it seems like they have all figured it out. They, they have noticed, hey, you know what, since Reagan... 
we haven't really yeah. done all that much. We better start doing some stuff if we want to uh, be reelected next time, which is sort of the way politics is supposed to work. And, you know, here they got this sort of anodyne guy in uh, Joe Biden who doesn't really threaten anyone. You know, had that been Elizabeth Warren, they would have been fighting tooth right. and nail against it. And she would have been lucky to get, you know, a one trillion dollar uh, package passed. Oh, anything passed. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And I think. You know, and it's it's unfortunate. I think I love Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. I like Bernie. You know, I mean, yeah. these people are great. But uh, you know, that is not what we're here for, right? I mean, just because we we prefer that particular style doesn't necessarily mean that you know it has to be that person. If as long as the policies that are coming through yeah. reflect the values that we all that get, we all care get, about, get the stuff passed. Do the yeah. governing. I don't Whatever give a damn it, who it is. Yeah. <laughs> And do you remember, I mean, they said about, about Roosevelt, and I was always, I've always been a little confused by this, that Roosevelt, you know, well, he has a, you know, a second-class mind but a first-class temperament, right? Um, maybe that's our boy, you know, <laughs> Joe Biden. Uh, I mean, uh-huh. you know, I mean, I don't want to say he's got a second-class mind. I'm not mm-hmm. going to say that. But if you can say it about Roosevelt, you can probably yeah. say it about Biden, and it's not an insult, right? But maybe the temperament thing is, it, maybe it's particularly important now as a contrast to what he, we just, what we just went through. He, that maybe there's a sense that okay, we can you know breathe a little here and let this guy let's see what he can and, do. And and you know it just seems like he doesn't care. He doesn't give a damn. As a matter of fact, <laughs> he doesn't even seem like he likes the job all that much. He's just gonna do the stuff he's got to do and get the hell out of there and you know not make a show of it. Because uh, he just doesn't give a damn. Uh, I got uh, two quick questions I want to try to uh, hit with you here. Uh, we're running short on time, Heather. But, uh, you know, as well as the the, the, the COVID American Rescue Plan uh, appears to be as good as it appears to be, and, and Biden and the Dems, their success in pushing it through without any major cutbacks, they still have a huge agenda with huge bills on democracy, H.R. 1, the For the People Act, which is just absolutely critical, infrastructure, gun safety, climate change, much more on this long deferred agenda. And yet for most of that, I, you know, they were able to pass this bill through reconciliation with a, a minority vote. But now I see them running smack dab into a wall in the Senate known as the filibuster. And with, you know, for the moment, no way around it, unless West Virginia's Joe Manchin agrees to some sort of reform to the filibuster. So as good as I think things are right now for the moment for Democrats, am I wrong to see big, big trouble ahead? uh, Or do you happen to be more hopeful than I am here? Well, I may be more hopeful, but, you know, one thing that it is important to remember is that, you know, Roosevelt had a big majority in the Congress, <laughs> so, you know, which obviously right. Joe Biden does not have. Right. So we're coming up against this, and the filibuster is, you know, obviously a problem. But imagine if we had a 50-50 Senate, and we didn't have the filibuster, and Joe Manchin didn't want to pass any of these things. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, it's, it's, it is not, you know, beyond the you know, scope of problems that even without the filibuster, you're dealing with a, you know, some centrists in the Democratic Party. This has always been true, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, two words, Joe Lieberman. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I mean, this is something that has always had to be dealt with. It's always a problem. And I kind of have a feeling, though, that again, I mean, maybe I'm giving him too much credit, 
that Joe Biden has probably a softer touch and a better way of doing that than most. I don't think Elizabeth Warren could persuade Joe Manchin to do anything, and I'm not. I don't think Bernie could either. I do think that Joe Man that Biden may have a possibility of doing that. Now, it we don't know what's going to happen. It's very very dicey. But Manchin has signaled in some ways that he is open to filibuster reform, and that may be what it takes. That may be all it takes, at least to pass some of the things. I mean, to me, they're, you know, everything's important. It's all important. We've got to do it. But mm-hmm. the infrastructure bill, which will, if the Democrats are smart, contain a massive amount of Green New Deal stuff in it, right, mm-hmm. that they will be doing all kinds of retrofitting and, you know, various things, creating jobs, green jobs, and, you know, d- doing that. And, and they're, that they're, they can get under reconciliation. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, and that may be where they have to go, although, you know, Manchin may be willing if there's some kind of resistance or we have that par- parliamentarian, you know, doing doing her thing again. Mm-hmm that he may be willing to filibuster, to, uh, quote, reform the filibuster mm-hmm. for something like that. To me, the big bill, and I know you're going to agree with me on yeah. this, and the one that is, it's an existential issue mm-hmm. for the Democratic Party and the country, is H.R. 1 and the John Lewis Act, yep. both of which are, you know, hugely important, yep. if, if unless we want to just give the, the, the country up to this crazy out of its mind Trump (laughs) cult that is talking about Dr. Seuss all day. I mean, you want to put those people in charge of the country for the next decade at a minimum, uh, you'll not pass election reform. I mean, that has to be done. And somehow that message needs to get to uh, Joe Manchin. Sounds like you're suggesting it's via Joe Biden. Some I hope so. Uh, some critical somebody. Joe on Joe action is what we have to look <laughs> forward to at this point. Uh, thank Ooh. you, Heather. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry to leave you with that. Heather Digby Parton, uh, of course, uh, simply known as Digby, uh, over at Hullabaloo, which you can uh, visit by going to digbysblog.net. You can also read her every day at salon.com and find her on the Twitters at Digby56. So much nicer talking with you about this stuff than that I other is, guy for it? the past four years. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I love it. Let's, let's do it again soon, Heather. Thank you. Anytime. All right. Thanks for having you me. Bet. Okay, um, we will. Uh, let's take a quick break here. Yep. We'll come back with. Uh, um, what are we coming back with? Oh, uh, how business works. Ah, awesome. A quick primer. Uh, before we get out today. All right, that's straight ahead. You don't want to miss this. Uh, That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But, of course, we need your help to do it. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like or even just a one-time-only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. Please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate right now. Go ahead, do it right now. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you.
Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I thought you hated Bachman Turner Overdrive, <laughs> no, Desi Doyen. Not at all. Oh, it's Creedence Clearwater Revival that you, you yeah. hate? You hate them? Why do you hate no, them? I don't hate them. Oh. I just, I'm not a big fan of their oh. music. I haven't been for a long time. Well, I see a bad moon horizon in that <laughs> case. Uh, anyway, welcome back to the show from an episode of The Daily Show this past week. Uh, they had a they had a they had what they called a remote learning special in which they offered some 1950s style educational segments. This one, for some reason, uh, A, I thought was very funny, but B, somehow seems appropriate today for some reason as we've been talking about, you know, the end of the Reagan revolution and all of that. Uh, This one called How Business Works. How Business Works. This is a factory. It's where we make the products we use. At the loading dock, raw materials arrive to start the process. Inside, workers do specialized jobs on the assembly line. In the office, managers plan how to move the whole operation overseas. (laughs) These talks spill over into steak dinners where difficult choices are made. (laughs) This is the new, cheaper factory in Cambodia. With increased profits, shareholders and executives are able to buy yachts, artwork, narcotics, politicians, and memberships in sadistic sex cults. Through this process, America's business leaders keep the country running while turning old factories into loft apartments for their adult children who do filmmaking, photography, and other fake things. (laughs) This process will be repeated until the system collapses, leaving us scavenging for berries and potable water. And that is how business works. There you go. That is how (laughs) business works, ain't it? Yep. Ain't it the truth? Uh, from The Daily Show. Uh, anyway, okay, we have to get out. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. Thanks to our guest today, Heather Digby-Parton. A delight, as ever, to have her back and a delight to spend yet another hour with you. Thanks for joining us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible, this is how our business works, <laughs> by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. That way, we don't have to deal with any businesses or big corporations telling us what to say. We can say whatever we want. But that, of course, is all thanks to you, at least those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That is it. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>